This is the Future of Cybercrime podcast, a new show dedicated to helping security practitioners on the front lines of defending their organization from the cybercrime underground. I'm your host, Zyra Perzato, former Gartner analyst, information security and risk strategist, and storyteller. Now, let's jump right into today's episode. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining me today. I am so excited for our guest. We have someone that has been in and around the journalism world, the investigative crime world, and this is going to be a wonderful conversation. Today, I'm speaking with Greg Otto. He's the editorial director at Trail of Bits. Greg is also the former chief cybercrime reporter at Intel 471 and spent five years in the editorial department of CyberScoop. You're probably familiar with all of them. Greg, thanks for chatting with me today. Pleasure to be here. Now, I don't know where to begin because I have so many questions for you, and I'm glad that you're glad to be here because we're going to have a wonderful conversation. But let's start everyone off on the right foot. I gave a brief background about you, and one of the things that I saw as well is that you started covering this tech industry in 2014 and then moved gradually into cybersecurity. What made you decide to focus on cybersecurity in the first place? What motivates you in that space? Well, first of all, I've been fascinated with technology, you know, since I was a kid and my parents came home with an Apple Macintosh and I've been playing with computers ever since. And as we've seen our world, you know, gravitate to be so dependent on technology, I have found it uh, more and more important and more and more fascinating to understand not just how everything works, but how do we keep everything safe and secure as we put so much of our lives online. So as I have seen that, you know, the growth, whether it's on the iPhone or whether it's just, you know, laptops, Internet of Things, anything that you could think of that is now connected to the Internet, I think that there is an inherent push to make it as safe as possible. So I've been very, very fascinated in trying to see how people are attempting to make things as safe as possible when it comes to the internet. And I've had a pleasure covering and writing about all facets of that since I started really concentrating on it in 2014. It's wonderful to hear that technology grabbed you at such a young age and that your interest is aligned from then. This is such a similar story to many in our world of technology and cybersecurity, we somehow gravitated to some piece of technology that piqued our interest. And lo and behold, we've stumbled into a place that is incredibly exciting. Now, you took that interest and you brought it to CyberScoop. You were the editor-in-chief at CyberScoop, which is big. How would you describe that relationship between journalists and security researchers while you're there? In fact, the entire experience. The relationship between journalism and security researchers, I mean, so I've been on both sides of it between my time at CyberScoop and my time Intel 471, and even as I started at Trail of Bits. And I think that the relationship has been, you know, push and pull, I would say. I think it's tough because as a journalist, you are trying to cover so much so quickly from a media perspective, especially with the dawn of the internet and social media. The deadline 
like it's now, it was yesterday, it's tomorrow, like it's just fluid, it's infinite, it's always happening. So you're trying to get as much information as you can get out there as possible. And seconds matter. So I think, especially with the just overwhelming concentration in cybersecurity over the past couple of years, it is really tough for journalists to cover everything that is going on. Then on the security research side, security researchers, I've always been in awe of the security researchers that I've worked with at my time in cybersecurity since 2014, but especially in journalism because they were just so smart and so well-versed and there's so much that goes into cybersecurity. It is a very complicated field. It is not something just like mm-hmm. just sports because I at one time wanted to be a sports journalist and it's not just, you know, the guy, you know, Mr. Pitch, the guy struck out uh-huh. game over, or, there's you know, some the insane guy, table stakes. <laughs> right. Right. With, with cybersecurity, it's getting into, well, you know, here's what happens on a computer level, the hardware and the software and the kernel. You know, here's why the Internet of Things is dangerous. Here's why, you know, the cloud presents its own issues as compared to, you know, just having an on-premise data center. Uh, there's so much that goes into it and so much that needs to be explained. And it's tough to fit into 700 words, 800 words for a journalism story. So I butted heads with security researchers. And at times there was, you know, some friction to say, but there was growth. There was growth that came from that friction and it helped build CyberScoop into the great publication that it is today. But it also, I think, elevated the conversations to say, to go back to the security researchers and say, you need to find a way to translate this for people to understand, um, you know, that don't have that deep technical background. Mm -hmm. I would explain it a lot of time, and I still use this metaphor to this day, is that cybersecurity experts are mechanics and they are deep mechanics. They know how every bolt, every nut, every spark plug, so to speak, inside a computer functions the way that it does. You, as a mechanic, need to explain to the drivers of the cars why things work this way and why if things aren't working this way, it can be dangerous because not everybody's going to be a mechanic. Yeah, A lot of people just want to be able to drive their car safely and know in the back of their minds that when they step into a car, that they can drive it safely. Now, yes, driving a car, there's always some inherent risk. Just like, you know, when you step into a car, there's some inherent risk that you might get in an accident. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there is that dependence or there is that trust that when you step behind the wheel of a car, the engine's not going to fall out while you're driving. So I think that the big takeaway from that relationship for me was, you know, finding a good place to explain to people, this is why computers and software and the apps that we all depend on work the way that they do. But also here's what is happening when we're talking about a hack or a ransomware attack or a data breach. And what needs to happen in order to protect yourself and prevent it from ever happening again. That's an incredible, incredible piece of insight. It's still necessary. Yeah, absolutely. You're welcome. It's still so very necessary in the cybersecurity world. Far too many people outside of it are divorced from the reality. It's, you can't feel it. You can't sense it. You can't see it. And people will understand to the level of their self-interest, it seems, all of the time. And so for you to be able to 
take the information from threat researchers, then also marry the perspective of what those researchers are discussing with journalists and come out with a product that matters to anyone is a big feat, very big feat. In the time that you've had so far in this industry, how have you seen cybercrime and the dark web evolve? Because I know you've, you've been privy to a lot of researchers and a lot of research. So I think the biggest change that I have seen from starting to where things are now is really how organized everything has become. I would say that over the past 10 to 15 years, really going back, I think of this term that's popular in uh, cybersecurity circles, a skitty or a script kitty, which is a sort of derisive term used to describe, you know, almost like a hacker stereotype, almost, that it is probably a young male sitting somewhere in a basement just causing trouble because they're smart enough to know how to break something, but mischievous enough to know that they're not supposed to be there and they're just causing havoc for the sake of a thrill or whatever. And that may lead to a crime where you see a worm proliferate or there's a phishing emails or some type of malware that is bouncing around the internet. Now, that still exists, but really where cybercrime is at now is you talk about these groups that are financially motivated cybercriminals. They're really very organized. When I use the term organized crime, I put the emphasis on the organized. You're talking about groups that if you didn't know their actual products or their actual service was stealing IP or stealing information or with the advent of Web3, stealing cryptocurrency, you would think that these are just startups. A lot of these crime groups have a support in the terms of like HR, accounts receivable, accounts payable. Like a lot of these people think that they are just working for a company. They might be actually in the dark on what they're doing. Now, some aren't like, okay, yeah, I understand what's going on, but I just want a paycheck. So I'm going to keep doing this. And it is an organized group that is launching ransomware attacks or trying to steal credentials from servers or cloud instances that they've found unprotected on the internet. And they operate just as any other company would. And they really do operate that way without much fear of reprisal in the terms of like law enforcement. A lot of these groups work, you know, in that Eastern European block where they can be protected by Russian interests or, you know, they're in countries that are not really friendly with the Western world and don't have extradition treaties and aren't going to arrest anybody on, you know, the US or the UK's behalf. And so they pretty much operate freely. The only real threat that they have to be locked down for their crimes is if they decide they're going to travel to a country where there is an extradition treaty and they will be arrested, which has happened. We have seen uh, some pretty flagrant threat actors decide that they're going to take vacations to somewhere nice in Europe. And next thing you know, they're arrested on behalf of the FBI. But for the most part, they pretty much operate freely. And they operate like they're in a company. They punch in at work at 9 a.m., go home at 5 or 6, have their nice weekends, and uh, really carry on with their lives. So it really is fascinating from the standpoint to see how organized they are, that it's almost boring. It is almost just a corporate job. But again, their output isn't 
just for the sake of profits, it's profits, but it's attached to crime. Absolutely. This is a conversation I have been waiting to have. And, and the reason why is because how much is actually published and publicized about the way that these crime syndicates create websites? There has to be an individual or team coding. There have to be creative teams that are designing and writing those sites to lure people in. There have to be marketing roles even. All of this yields that grand question, to what degree are they organized, given that they are also internationally distributed? And to what effect will this bear on the cybersecurity industry as we know it, as well as just enterprises of all sizes? What what do you think? Yeah, I think it just ends up being a game of cat and mouse, really, because, you know, the financially motivated cybercrime groups will put out job listings. They're not going to be online necessarily. They're going to be in forums where they know they're going to be looking for people that don't necessarily have great morals, but have the technical chops to do what they need to do. And then they get hired, they get trained, and they get put onto teams to you know, create phishing emails, to harvest credentials, to launch ransomware attacks, to negotiate with companies and organizations that are attacked in order to try to get some ransoms sent to them. So on the flip side of that, you have all of these threat intelligence companies that are working to uncover these groups, where they work, how they work, what malware are they developing, what tools are they standing up on, what credentials are they trying to harvest. And then you have other companies that are standing up, you know, software solutions like firewalls or uh, EDRs or things that can help corporations from being hacked, whether it's opening a phishing email and blocking a phishing email, blacklisting phishing sites that they know of, security training, and then other things that are more enterprise-driven, credential management when it comes to cloud security or Active Directory or you know these corporate tools that organizations use to manage their IT. So I really do think that it is a cat and mouse game right now. And it's been that way for years. And I'm not necessarily sure how it ends because it is really a Gordian knot in terms of, you know, you talk about compliance, whether it is, you know, a company that needs to just have checkbox security in order to be good. And whether or not a CISO or a CIO or a CEO maybe says, that's all we need. That's all we're good with. That's all that I'm going to do. Or maybe, you know, the budgetary spend isn't necessarily there because it is not necessarily a profit-driven part of uh, a company. You know, I've had conversations with people in the industry where they go, you know, cybersecurity uh, really is like a tertiary spend where, you know, companies are trying to spend in order to make money. And, you know, the technology wing is really a secondary spend where it's, okay, how do we leverage that technology to make profit? And then the security gets bolted on top of that technology. So you're looking at a smaller slice of the pie when it comes to a company spend. So, there's the company spend, there's the compliance, and then there's also just the real threat from a risk management standpoint. So all this stuff needs to be considered when you're talking about cybersecurity, but then you also have, you know, the threat actors that don't really care about, yeah. <laughs> about all that <laughs> About stuff. any of it, yeah. Yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm just trying to get paid. You know, they're just trying to get paid and get paid by any means necessary. So it really is a balancing act. Uh, it's not a fun one, but it is one that I think that the best way to describe it really is a cat and mouse game. And it's one I don't think that it's going to go away anytime soon. Oh, no, there's no way. There's no way it can go away. <laughs> not at this point. 
I like what you're bringing up about compliance, threat management as well. Yeah, really cool analogy that I came up with simply because it's getting so cold here on parts of the East Coast. I was thinking about just how much it's going to suck when it starts to snow over here and thought, you know what, when I leave the house, I'm putting on the right gear to get me from destination A to point of destination B. And in order to get there, if it's snowing like heck outside, if there's a lot of ice on the ground, is to wear the best gear possible to get me there efficiently, to have the best sensibility to get me there and the direction to get me there safely. And that really is what I think compliance does for you to some degree and threat management does for you to some degree, right? Compliance is making sure that you have that hygiene. You know that you're putting on your coat, your scarf, your hat, those boots. And then when you're looking at risk management, or rather from a threat perspective, you're saying, well, mm, if this thing happens, which is most likely to happen based on the weather report, how am I going to adjust for this gear? So it's not too bulky (laughs) or it's not too scant. And that is, right? So that's where that threat management part happens. And then folks are like, ah, that makes sense. But then when you start to talk dollars, and the unknown, it then becomes a business speech and people are divorced from the reality of what this is. So that long-winded analogy to say all parts of this process matter, but they have to be evenly balanced, yeah? Definitely. One thing that that I'm wondering, from your time and experience as an editor, and now, now that you're working in-house, what approaches by journalists and security researchers have you seen work well as they look into dark web threat intelligence? I know it's a pretty broad question, but take it as you will. So I think to be a good cybersecurity journalist, it can be complicated because you need to understand how the technology works. And like I don't think you need to understand it on a super deep technical level. Like You don't need to have the same technical know-how as like a deep security researcher with like a PhD and can argue with you about uh, cryptographic theorems and then the math behind that. You don't need to have that level, but you need to understand how all of the technology works together, but also need to understand like the practical level of how businesses apply cybersecurity, because I think a lot of that funnels into how hacks or how breaches or how security incidences are really pile. Going back to what you were talking about in terms of like cyber hygiene, I think that that's a good point to start because journalists need to understand that how important that really is. Like I bet there's some people that are listening to this, hearing the term cyber hygiene and rolling their eyes because it really is a trope at this point. But at the same time, (laughs) it really is important because a lot of that thought process and a lot of what goes into cyber hygiene can stop a lot of attacks. So it almost becomes, I hate to use the term checklist in this regard, but it is a good way for journalists to think about incidents and groups and hacks when they're when they're covering something that happens, like a ransomware attack. It's like, okay, well, how's this company doing in terms of password management? Uh, or were there credentials out there on the cybercrime underground? Was it a cloud instance that got locked up? Like, what can't the company do right now? What can't the organization do right now? And really understand the different layers of technology that goes into it. Because a lot of the time, and I've seen this when 
I was at Intel 471 and I'd have journalists come to the company to say, hey, you know, organization X looks like they got hit by ransomware. Do you have anything on it? And it would say, well, what does that mean? Like that, that's so vague. Like, what do you mean? Do we have anything on it? Unless you are the company itself or an incident response firm that may be tied into doing the remediation for that ransomware attack, we don't have anything on it. So unless you understand the attacker or, you know, have some other information other than, well, were they attacked? That's not Hmm. like, that's just not good enough. Like that any cybersecurity company that's going to respond to that is lying. Like they just are. They're they're (laughs) lying. Like unless they are the actual incident response company. And at that point, they're probably not going to talk to you anyway because they're busy trying to remediate the situation. And there's probably an NDA attached too. So to just say like the ambulance chasing, I guess to say, which happens like, and I understand it from the journalism perspective is that, okay, you want to get the story first and you want to have all that information, but it's the standpoint of, you know, give it a few hours and let the incident unfold. Like this happens all the time in regular journalism where there's, you know, a fire or a robbery or some other event where details are unfolding. Ransomware attacks are no different. So I would say for reporting on these attacks when they are attached to financially motivated crimes, is try to understand how these attacks play out and how they work from a technical perspective. That is really, really vital in good reporting when the dust does settle. That's amazing. Thank you for promoting good cyber literacy. <laughs> you yes. need it. That is it. You need it. And when you say it, it makes so much sense. I wonder if it makes that much sense to journalists who are hyper-focused on being the first to break a story and then following the trail of a feed. I'll tell you this, Greg, learning even for threat researchers today and being hmm, more consciously aware, applying proper critical analysis, all of this goes to the back burner when the signals and alerts are going off and you have to be on top of everything in a specific amount of time. Is that that's what's happening in the, the threat researcher world, among other things. It seems to be happening in the journalism world too, right? This information overload? Yeah, it's funny that you say that. There is definitely information overload. And from my time at CyberScoop transitioning over to Intel 471, I found that there were a lot of similarities in threat research and journalism. It's just the threat research part of it is a little more technical from the standpoint of It's a little more technical and a little more cloak and dagger, I would say. Like there's a little bit more detective work that goes into being a threat researcher, at least when it comes to financially motivated threat actors, because you're in this dark web. And I sigh when I say dark web, because that's a term that's that gets (laughs) uh, attached to this area. And it's one that I didn't like. Intel 471 never really liked either because it makes it seem like it's dark, it's spooky, it's unacceptable to everybody. And it's really not. It's just the internet by, you know, and it, it's a different corner of the internet. Uh, we mm-hmm. really like to use the term cybercrime underground. I think that that is a better reflection of what is really happening because it's, like I said, it's the same internet. It's just you sometimes have to go onto a forum that may be gated with a password or somebody has to vouch for you, or you may have to show your technical credentials or even like 
your criminal credentials. And during my time there, we saw that sort of move, especially with the ransomware attacks that happened on the JBS, the meat supplier and the uh, colonial pipeline, because so much got focused on where those crimes were happening, especially those cybercrime forums, which were accessible via Tor. But if you could get in, anybody could watch what was happening. And that's what happened. Security researchers sit on those forums and watch what was happening. And if security researchers can watch those forums, the threat actors realized, well, the cops can too. So we need to move elsewhere. And they started moving to Telegram forums and more private chats. So the threat researchers are now trying to watch those chats as well. So that's what I mean by like the cloak and dagger aspects of it. But once they have their sources, they're pulling information, gathering information and writing reports off that information uh, for their subscribers. And their subscribers are the customers of their threat intelligence company who have paid money to get those reports. That model, that's the journalism model. It's a little bit different in terms of uh, you know subscription fees and audience size, but People that subscribe to the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal, they are paying for a product that will give them information that they're using to make decisions in their day, whether it is financial information to increase their stock portfolio or how they're going to vote or how they're going to protect themselves or you know yeah. enrich themselves in their daily lives. So journalism and threat research, they really, really are very, very similar. I really do think that the difference is that, you know, the subscription base is a little bit different. The audience base is a little bit different. The subscription fees are a little bit different. And <laughs> uh, the end result is a little bit different as well. Oh, that's a good way of, of saying everything and of putting it. Yeah. You're making this this entire concept less elusive. I definitely am glad you, you spoke to, well, for one, dark web as not being as spooky and again this word abstract concept as as it truly is it's something that requires the proper software the configurations and the authority to get into but it's there it's just the alley you haven't explored is what you're saying and i'm glad that you're you're bringing attention to that and also to the skills necessary here so tell me greg five years from now i know it's an insanely long time from now in this I I understand. But five years from now, what do you think the cybercrime threat intelligence space will look like? Perhaps even the cybercrime underground, as as you've mentioned as well. Wow, I have. I, I wish because <laughs> I'd start a company and uh, profit eventually off of it. But I look, based on trends, I think one of the biggest things, I'll hit on a couple of different notes here. One of the biggest things that was interesting during my time at Intel 471 I'm really paying attention to the cybercrime underground was how aligned the like APT groups, the nation state aligned groups were getting with some of these more financially motivated cybercrime groups and how the lines were blurring, especially with Russia and China, I would say, because look, whether it is an APT, a nation state group or a financially motivated group, the, the means to get to the end is still that technical know-how. Like it's the same technical know-how, basically. Try to harvest credentials to get into a system or try to write an exploit that will get you into a system where you can gather bespoke information that can either help from an intelligence gathering standpoint on a geopolitical level or 
be gathered to be held for ransom and could be either sold or held up and, and try to use for some sort of illegal monetary gain. But like I said, there's that nexus. Those skills are the same. It is malware development. It is exploit research. And a lot of these advanced countries, Russia and China, are starting to see that those skills that are out there on those internets can be uh, co-opted into their espionage efforts. So I think that you're going to see the lines blur even more than they're already starting to blur in terms of just where these cyber criminals and threat actors sit and how you're not even going to be able to really use those terms like nation state or financially motivated threat actors. I think because those lines are going to blur so much over the next five years that even though I use them today and I can draw a line between them, that line is just going to continually blur. And we're going to have to come up with a different way to describe the threat actors that we are chasing because one day they might be doing something that is aligned with the goals of a nation state. And the next day they may be launching a ransomware attack that is just for the sake of stealing some money. And we might be talking about the same threat actor group. We're already starting to see a lot of that right now. And the lines are only going to continue to blur as they continue to be successful in these attacks. Yeah. (laughs) You know, look, this seems very familiar. It does. Parallel state structures that exist in certain nation states, right? From one group that grew as a small mafia-like band to already taking over a good portion of a country, initiating what seems to be, you know, civil wars in some, or perhaps just this no man's land in another where only crime happens and crime rules. We know it so well. And then to say, hey, in this other dimension, this non-tangible dimension, this is also going to happen. That's pretty scary. What do you think the outcome will be? I mean, it can't just stop espionage and extortion, right? Do you believe that we will get to, I guess, I hate the term, and I mean hate here, cyber war, but escalation. How about we talk about escalation? How long do you think until we get to actual armed escalation? So... uh armed escalation due to a cyber attack. I mean, it's something that has been debated for years going back to before I was in this space. And I, again, I wish I had the answer because I would imagine that I could help out some top level generals and then the White House and the Five Eyes agencies (laughs) uh, because this is something that I'm sure keeps them up at night. I'm not sure what needs to happen. would need to be pretty ugly in terms of a cyber event escalating to the point where there is kinetic attacks, a kinetic response, I should say, you're going to have to see something that causes uh, loss of life in order for there to be some sort of kinetic response, I believe. And I think that's why the developed world is so worried about attacks on like the infrastructure, like power infrastructure, basically. I think because that in its own right can be connected That whole world of like infrastructure attacks and the Internet of Things and how uh, the electrical grid eventually makes its way to the Internet is such a fascinating world that it really does have the attention of, you know, the geopolitical apparatus in the world and how an attack there could eventually spiral into a kinetic response. That being said, that is still all thankfully hypothetical at this point. And I think that, you know, you look at what's happening 
in Ukraine with the war there, that in the lead up to that, in the few weeks after that conflict really popped off, there were a lot of people going, this is it. This is going to be the quote unquote first big cyber war that we see in history. And that didn't really happen. That's not to say that there weren't some missions and some offensive deaths that were cyber related, but really anything that is cyber related has really been support. I mean, we've all seen what has happened in Ukraine and it's all been uh, kinetic. It's been quote unquote traditional warfare, tanks, bombs, you know, just actual kinetic stuff. Nobody has really seen quote unquote cyber attacks that have led to that loss of life. Anything that you have seen from a military perspective that has been related to cybersecurity has been in support of other traditional warfare means. Mm -hmm. So a lot of it right now is really hypothetical. And I don't know what would uh, take to see something escalate other than what has been, you know, talked about in circles for years, that it would take an attack that would result in a lot of loss of life. And that would probably have to come through an attack on some sort of uh, energy grid or electrical grid or some sort of power that results in a big loss of life. And then you would see a kinetic response. We're just not there yet. Mm. And and thankfully, we're not there yet. I don't ever want to see that day. And I think that a lot of other experts and a lot of other officials and a lot of other world leaders don't want to see that happen either. Oh, absolutely. It can be just even just one action that sends another off thinking like example Franz Ferdinand like it could be one it could be one thing perhaps a a large attack on a financial institution and that financial institution is integral to a nation state survival and then slowly but surely you see a a, a response a more diplomatic response like perhaps related to trade or even just related to interfering in the certain politics of another nation state and slowly escalation to escalation to escalation. There are so many paths to this, but I too hope that all paths right. don't yield a kinetic response. And well, yeah, and just to briefly, just to highlight something that you, you said in terms of you know nation states and financial hacking, we saw what North Korea did with the SWIFT banking hack where you know yeah. they stole uh, billions of dollars from the infrastructure of the worldwide banking system, and we hit them with sanctions, and they're still out there doing their thing. So no bombs have rained down because of it, but there's clearly an impetus behind some of these other countries to use it for their own benefit maliciously against the world. So it is part of the arsenal. Don't get me wrong. I think that you're going to see more of it as we become even more ingrained with technology, but I don't really know what that more looks like yet. I think the most honest answer. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. All right. So then leading up to whatever may happen in the next five years, I mean, after the past three years of what we've been through, I can't even promise you what's going to happen in the next hour. So I, I, (laughs) I, I take your answer to heart. All right. But, but let's say leading up to those five years, what can security practitioners look to? to do better. Yeah, I really go back to that cyber hygiene trope. I think that that can really go a long way to preventing companies and organizations of being hacked or being hit with like ransomware attacks. It's almost a cliche at this point, but I hear this a lot at conferences or other events where 
you know, you say from a security perspective, you don't have to hope you outrun the bear completely. You just hope that you have to outrun the person that is, you know, the closest one to the bear, basically. I've screwed that up a little bit, but basically (laughs) what I'm getting at is that, look, there's always some risk involved depending on technology so much. So you want to make the fence as high as possible. So if an attacker does decide to poke around on your infrastructure, you've shown that it would be a lot of work for them to get inside your organization. They're not going to bother. They're going to go somewhere else and then try to find an easier way into some ill-begotten gains. Then the way that you do that is really protecting passwords, protecting credentials, not putting, you know, your clouds, if you depend on the cloud, making sure that your cloud instances aren't just unprotected and connected to the internet. If you have a big employee staff, make sure that they're using password managers, make sure that they're using strong passwords in those password managers. If you want to get fancy with it, look into hardware security keys. We use uh, YubiKeys at Trilobits, and I've used YubiKeys even before I started at Trilobits. It's a fantastic way to protect yourself. Just do the things that are the lowest hanging fruit because you don't want to be an attacker's lowest hanging fruit. And you want them just to go to the next tree where they can try to find their ill-begotten gains somewhere else. So do what you need to do in order to protect your crown jewels the easiest way possible. And honestly, two-factor authentication, password managers, that easy cyber hygiene stuff can really go a long way to protecting your enterprise. Mm-hmm. Okay, don't set and forget basics, basics, basics. <laughs> don't even just forget basics. You'd be surprised how many hacks happen because organizations are not following the basics. Security practitioners will stop talking about the basics when enterprises start following the basics. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah uh, message. Shut us up. <laughs> Start to do the the stuff you should be doing. That's a one-liner. That's a good one. <laughs> Thank you for that. Well, Greg, I could take up all of your time. I say this to folks I really enjoy having conversations with. Amazing conversation today. And we do have to wrap up, but where can people continue to follow your journey and keep up with you? Where should they go? So I personally, on Twitter, if you'd like to follow me, I am at Greg Otto, all one word, G-R-E-G-O-T-T-O. And you can check out all the things that Trail of Bits is doing at Trail of Bits on Twitter. We have a blog that we put out. We regularly update just fantastic security research there in software assurance, cryptography, machine learning security, just extremely high level uh, security stuff. It's fascinating. And also speaking of podcasts, we have a podcast ourselves, which talks about a lot of the work that we are doing. I believe it is audio.trailofbits.com. If that doesn't work, just Google uh, Trail of Bits podcast. You'll be able to find it. Six episodes, 20 minutes an episode, some fascinating talks about all the work that we're doing. All right. I'll be tuning in. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Well, Greg, thanks again for all of your time today, for the wonderful insights you've imparted on everybody listening and for the work that you do. It's not often that in the security space we're talking to investigative journalists that are also 
very, very knowledgeable in the cybersecurity space. And it's not often that we not only just talk to them, but learn about how and what they do. So I really appreciate your time today. Appreciate it. It's been a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. Well, I'll keep in touch with you. All the folks here listening know where to find you. Thank you all for tuning in. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. Take care, all. Take care, guys. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Future of Cybercrime podcast brought to you by Kella. For the latest episodes, please visit ke-la.com or search Future of Cybercrime on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks, and we'll catch you on the next episode.